Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. Let's take a look this time at a book by Jonathan Morrow called Questioning the Bible. Subtitle is 11 Major Challenges to the Bible's Authority. And I've done a Morrow's book before. I've talked about one of his others called uh, Think Christianly. And he's a co-author of another book called Is God Just a Human Invention? He's director of creative strategies for Impact 360 Institute. So he wrestles this time with a very difficult issue, and that's the the Bible itself. I mean, it's the most influential book in human history, but what about now? Can it still be trusted? Is the Bible against thinking? Is it anti-intellectual? Hasn't it been corrupted over the years? I mean, who sat down and chose these books anyway to call them the Bible? And which interpretation is actually the correct one? Aren't, aren't the Gospels full of contradictions? So you've got all these attacks going on out in the world today. People used to be pretty quiet about them a generation ago, but we've got attacks now on the origin and the credibility and the reliability of the Bible. A lot of skepticism uh, toward institutional religions uh, is at an all-time high. So the Bible, of course, is going to have a lot of uh, skeptical views of it. Here's the chapter I'd like to go over this time. It's a pretty long chapter, so I'll see how much I can do with it. This chapter is called, Is the Bible Sexist, Racist, Homophobic, and Genocidal? Okay, I know that's nuts to try to take on that much. But uh, think about that. Is the Bible sexist? Does it put down women? Is it racist? Is it homophobic? Is it genocidal? Of course, that's referencing some of the Old Testament battles and all. He says, no doubt about it, a lot that's in the Bible is shocking and confusing. And said it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. He has a quote from Richard Dawkins near the beginning. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew. Well, Richard, why don't you just come out and say what you think? So he's uh, back to Morrow. He says, you know, the moral challenges like this to the Bible are pretty difficult to answer. You have to deal with them rationally, but they're emotional charges as well. So here's some of the things that are in this chapter. And again, because of time, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But how about the idea of slavery? Because there doesn't seem to be any place where it says slavery is wrong and we've got to get rid of slavery. But he says, here are five things that we really need to know as we wrestle with this issue. Is the Bible pro-slavery? He says, first, Christianity didn't invent slavery. Every society has had it. And he says, in fact, we'll see as we go through the rest of this chapter how revolutionary and countercultural the message of the Bible was during the time that it was composed. He says, second point, the biblical discussion must appear within cultural context. He says, we think of slavery today with uh, the blacks in America and the uh, terrible beatings and the perpetual slavery that lasted their whole lives and the way they got sold and just all these terrible things that happened. He said, back in this time, he says, very different. It's more like indentured servitude. And he says the biggest causes of slavery back then were war and poverty, not skin color. And uh, an Old Testament scholar that he quotes, Christopher Wright, said slavery there was 
qualitatively vastly different from slavery and the large imperial civilizations. He says you had people that were captives of war, and he says uh, Israelite slavery was was far better than what happened in the Greeks in the Roman time periods. He said it was far different than the ghastly commercialized and massive scale slave trade that the Arabs and the Europeans and the Americans perpetrated upon Africa. So Morrow says, look, I'm not trying to justify slavery. But he said, you know, we see laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy that regulate it far different and far better than any surrounding nation. He also points out that, by the way, Israel is not God's ideal society. It was corrupt and broken when God was working with them. Okay, so there are two points about slavery. Here's a third point. <clears throat> Christianity tolerated slavery until it could be abolished. He says, you know, like anything else, change takes time. Human beings are free moral agents. God isn't going to twist everybody's arm. So change takes time. And he says those laws in the Old Testament that protected these uh, indentured servants was an improvement over other ancient Near Eastern nations. By the way, another book that you really need to read that talks about this is by Paul Copan, because he has the time to go into more detail. His book is called Is God a Moral Monster? And I'd recommend that one highly to you. Okay, so it says, uh, even in, like story of Job, it says Job recognized that his bond servants were created by God just like he was, and he'd have to answer to God if he mistreated them. That's in Job 31. Galatians 3 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. Paul urges Onesimus to take his slave Philemon and treat him as a brother. That's in the book of Philemon. So it says economic slavery is evil, but there's a problem. It says in a fallen world, if there was immediate abolition, that could have caused violence and starvation and total societal collapse. So it says for lasting change to occur and for it to be sustained, there had to be some kind of moral tipping point reached over time. And they give you the example of here of William Wilberforce. He knew that it was going to take time, and he incrementally worked for years to make the abolition of slavery become a real thing. Here's a fourth point about slavery. Jesus was not silent on slavery. He simply understood what the root issues were. They were the human heart. Jesus' job was to set spiritual captives free, and he knew that that would have a real-world effect. So Jesus came to set the captives free. It's begun now, but it's going to wait, and it's, we have to all wait the final consummation. Here's a fifth point. The Christian worldview actually best accounts for human rights and dignity. He says, think about racism. That's at odds with us being made in God's image that we got from the Bible. He says, atheism rose to prominence only after centuries of the Judeo-Christian ethic had actually shaped the modern civilization. Atheism didn't lay the groundwork for right, human rights and dignity and equality. It borrowed from the Judeo-Christian worldview. If you take God out of the equation, you remove inherent human dignity. Okay, so there's the first area about racism and, I'm sorry, about slavery in the Bible. Here's a second issue. What about genocide? And again, I would say if you want more in-depth, read that Paul Copan book, C-O-P-A-N, that I mentioned is God a moral monster. Well, this one says, look, look at Deuteronomy. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing 
that breathes, but you shall devour, devote them to complete destruction. And that's the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and on and on and on. That's Deuteronomy 20. Well, these are part of what's called the conquest narratives. So he said, again, let's go through five things that you really ought to know so that you can figure this out a little bit better about genocide. First, things are not the way they ought to be. No kidding. This was, war is not God's idea. Peace is supposed to be the ideal situation. But he says, it was within this volatile, kill or be killed world of the ancient Near East, God began the process of redemption. But it, of course, wasn't over then. So human nature being human nature, yeah, you're going to get wars. But what about that divinely given command to Israel to wipe out the Canaanites? Well, Morrow says that was unique. It was geographically and temporally limited, and it was not to be repeated. That was a single episode, that conquest of the Canaanites. It was a single episode within one generation out of all the generations of Old Testament history. And he says the actual invasion and destruction of those cities took place within a single generation. So it said that's unfair to picture God constantly on the warpath uh, you know, for thousands of years. Not true. Here's a third problem with this idea of the genocidal God. Genocide and ethnic cleansing are not the right terms for this conquest of Canaan. He goes through a list of some of the things the Canaanites did, their idolatry, their incest, their bestiality, child sacrifice. I mean, they were known among other peoples of the time as a horrific group of people. It's been well documented. Uh, they took, for example, Molech. That was their underworld deity. And they had him up right, a bullheaded idol with a human body. And inside the belly, they would stoke a fire. And in those arms that had gotten red hot, they would place a child to be burned to death. And these were not unwanted kids. It said Plutarch reports that during these sacrifices, they would make a lot of noise of drums and flutes so that you wouldn't hear the shrieking of the child. So the conquest of the land of Canaan is... God acting in judgment, and judgment against a degraded society. And he did it with his own people. He kept chastising the Jews. So he's chastising the Canaanites as well. This is a sinful thing. This is not based on their skin color or anything like that. The actions of the Israelites, it's always shown as divine punishment operating through human agency. God is the creator of life. He has the right to take life. And uh, so that's a different way to view it, I would think here. He says the, the language of ethnic cleansing and genocide is inaccurate. It was idolatry, not ethnicity, that was the issue. Okay, here's a, a fourth issue. We have to allow, he says, for the possibility of hyper-language or rhetorical generalization, whatever you want to say in this war language. He said Canaan was certainly a terrible, terrible nation, but it says... Total destruction of everything that breathes? He says, well, in reality, the main targets were the key military centers. And he says, many people share this view that it's very likely that the women and children would have fled the cities when the warriors fought. And he says, it's exaggerated language, like you have in the sports section today. You know, they, they slaughtered the other team or they, uh, they beat them to a pulp. It says there was exaggerated war language used in the text. That was typical of the day. It said texts from other nations show that such total destruction of war was practiced, or at least claimed, elsewhere. 
So it said often that was way beyond the reality. And in fact, Copan points out, if you read, there are other places afterwards that still had some Canaanites. So they didn't wipe them all out. All right, so there are some of the issues that uh, they're talking about as far as this Canaanite genocidal destruction. What about the Bible being homophobic? Okay, do we have time? I guess I can go through that one as well. He says, let's set the biblical record straight on homosexual behavior. It says, first, it's, it is among a long list of sinful behaviors, but it's not by itself. God designed sex to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that's so homo, homosexual sex is outside that design. But it's part of a long list of sins. So is it sexual immorality? Yeah, it's brought up as sinful in Genesis and Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. I think Morrow has it right. The clearest declaration is in Romans 1, 26 to 27, uh, where he says, uh, it says the only passage that specifically addresses female homosexuality too. So he's Paul is talking about the universality there of human sinfulness. Every person is un, under God's righteous judgment. So homosexual behavior is just part of it. It's not the total thing. Paul argues based on uh, the way people are built that males and females are biologically and anatomically designed to operate sexually. So secondly, right? so the first point, let me go back and catch that one again. Yeah, homosexual behavior is sinful, but it's you know among a lot of different sins. Secondly, the Bible doesn't teach that God created people to be gay. Right? So he didn't create them that way. Third, while the Bible doesn't teach that people are born gay, it does teach that all people are sinful. No kidding. Uh, it says, uh, hasn't science shown that people are born gay? No. He quotes from Alan Schliemann here of Stand to Reason. It said, uh, their new position of the American Psychological Association says this, although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. All right, fourth, Morrow says the Bible teaches that change is possible for those that struggle with sin. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that talks about all these people that will never inherit the kingdom of God. And among that list of things like these and the greedy people and the drunkards and swindlers, there's homosexuality in there. But what's so great is right at the end of that passage, that's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So all of us are broken. All of us are welcome. And all of us are called to repentance, and we can change. And that's what happened. Paul says this is exactly what happened in Corinth. There are plenty of people who struggle with and overcome same-sex attraction. But, you know, even if we can't overcome that, we can fight it. Uh, you know, many people have heterosexual lusts outside of marriage, but you've got to struggle, you've got to deal with that. And then finally, I like this one, he says, the Bible teaches that holiness not heterosexuality is the goal of the spiritual life. So what are we supposed to do? Look at Romans 8, 29. It doesn't say become heterosexual. We were supposed to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. 
we need to explain that orientation or temptation by same-sex attractions is not in and of itself sin. It says many people with these inclinations find ways to honor God, either through celebrity or a heterosexual marriage. Well, I'd love to cover one more, and I don't know if I will... Okay, I'll do this real fast. Is the Bible sexist? Does it demean women? What about all this polygamy and stuff? Well, he says God's creational ideal is that women are made in the image of God and have the same dignity, the same honor, the same value as men. Well, then he says, was there polygamy? Sure. But he says polygamy was tolerated and regulated to offer some measure of protection for women. And so it says God does work within that patriarchal society and provides all sorts of protections and controls for women. And then what I think is so good is he quotes Tim Keller. I love Tim Keller's work. Tim Keller says, you know, when I started reading the book of Genesis, he said, I got upset because they have all these wives. He said, all this polygamy, and they're buying and selling the wives. And he said, it was awful to read all of that stuff. But he said, you know, if you read it and you think about it, all of those stories show that polygamy wreaks havoc. It always ruins things. So he says, if you read the book of Genesis and really think about it, it subverts. It doesn't support polygamy. Third thing that Morrow says is, think about how women were treated in the Greco-Roman world. It was harsh. Women, uh, there were female infanticides to get rid of uh, unwanted girls. Girls didn't get education. Under Athenian law, a woman was classified as a child. I mean, they didn't have good things going at all. But Paul had a high regard of women, and the teachings of Christianity began to elevate their status. And a sociologist, Rodney Stark, and you've got to read some Rodney Stark. He's really, really good. He says Paul gets a bad rap for his perceived low view of women, but it says he identified women as co-workers. He had a high regard of women. He said there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And Stark says the earliest Christians frequently recited those countercultural words as a baptismal confession. Widows, instead of just being abandoned, they were cared for, and older women were given a place of honor. Morrow also says Jesus is good news for women. He healed women of diseases. He interacted with them of different races. He extended forgiveness for uh, women that had committed sexual sins. He says Jewish rabbis of the day wouldn't teach women. But Jesus had many women followers and disciples. They supported him. They uh, listened to his teaching. They were the first ones, by the way, at the uh, gravesite at the tomb to find out that he had risen. So I know this is a big hurry. I know this is a lot of material to uh, shove at you. But you can actually use a lot of these arguments, flip them on their heads, because they actually support Christianity. They don't tear it down, and they don't tear down the Bible. So again, uh, this book is called Questioning the Bible, Jonathan Morrow. I would suggest if you want something more in-depth, Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? Okay, well, thanks for your time.